This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, April 11th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. As we mark the 50th anniversary of the death of President Eisenhower, it's worth taking a moment to consider his presidency, his most famous and enduring speech, and the lessons for governing today. Cato Vice President Chris Preble comments. President Eisenhower um, was a five-star general. He was president of Columbia University. Correct. He became president in 1953. Yes. On his way out of office in 1961, right. he gave a speech that is long remembered as a warning about this growing uh, ten- sort of tentacle relationship right. between uh, military leaders and uh, the private sector. Correct. And if there's one thing you can say about somebody like Dwight Eisenhower is that he understood government bureaucracy, he understood school bureaucracy, yes. he understood bureaucracies very well. And having served uh, eight years as president, it seemed like uh, he was saying to the world, hey, I there's nothing else I can do about this problem. That's right. I'm leaving, but you all need to take this real seriously. That's right. I mean, the speech is is a lament, right? This was a admission um, on Eisenhower's part that he had basically tried and failed. He had personally failed, but he it was a warning and it was a call to action on the part of, of the Americans and leaders who came after him that they would be mindful of the dangers of um, the country, both the government and the private sector, becoming too... Um, dependent upon the military and in the context of the university system and and also in terms of basic research and science and technology he warned about the scientific technological elite which is sort of less remembered than the military industrial complex but he saw this uh, growing um, relationship between the government uh, and the federal government and and universities and and researchers and uh, famously said, you know, that once upon a time, you know, the solitary tinkerer working in his garage could create great things. But now we're we're in a situation where uh, great discoveries seemingly can only be done with the system, you know, with a very, very strong uh, federal government involvement. Now, that's not entirely true. And he couldn't have anticipated, of course, a lot of the innovation that occurred uh, in the 1990s in particular and since uh, in the tech sector and internet businesses and things like that but but again he had seen as president as both as president of Columbia University briefly but then especially as president of the United States um, just how the federal government had become involved was becoming involved in more and more things and mostly because of the the seeming uh, exigencies of national security our uh, former colleague Justin Logan yes. uh, recently said, Eisenhower looks good if graded on a curve, given the utterly insane zeitgeist in which he operated. And thinking about <laughs> yes. the 50s and about the uh, existential threats right. that faced the United States uh, at the time, you would imagine that and, – and dramatic increases in federal spending at that, over that period as well. So uh, give me a sense of how, uh, with respect to foreign policy, Eisenhower uh, – I guess made it work, and especially as as Justin points out, grading on a curve. Right. He he made it work for the most part by trying to leverage his own reputation um, as a wartime leader and as a avowed 
acknowledged expert on matters of national security and defense. The trouble is it didn't entirely work, right? He had had tried to convince the American people that the steps that he was taking were sufficient uh, to keep us safe, but the fear factor continued to rise and rise and rise. And one of the critical episodes, which I've studied previously, is the missile gap period. So after the launch of Sputnik in the late 1950s in his second term, um, that's where you really see the rush to uh, even greater involvement in federal uh, support for education, higher education, math, engineering, science, and things like that to get, you know, to accelerate the space race, things like that. He, he definitely um, wanted Americans to sort of try to maintain some semblance of balance and recognize that, yes, we are in a dangerous time and there are certain steps that we should and must take, but that there are trade-offs. There are always trade-offs. And, and again, I think if you compare that speech, if you read it or listen to it, and you compare it to the sort of soaring rhetoric of John F. Kennedy's speech given three days later in Kennedy's inaugural, um, the contrast is really stark. But in the, with the passage of time, I think Eisenhower's speech comes out better uh, it, it, because uh, his wisdom and his soberness was appropriate, whereas Kennedy's sort of soaring rhetoric in retrospect seems uh, overly ambitious. It leads to disasters like Vietnam, frankly. So uh – the Korean War. Mm -hmm. uh, Eisenhower presided over most of that. A good part of it. He, he in, During the course of the campaign in 1952, famously, he said he was going to go to Korea, which people interpreted as, well, he'll go to Korea and he'll fix this problem because by then the war had become quite unpopular. Um, he did go to Korea. It was mostly symbolic, um, but he recognized the importance of drawing the hard fighting to a close. And so, of course, you know, sort of um, uh, allowed to go forward the armistice agreement that ultimately ended the fight, most of the fighting. When we look at uh, presidents today, there is an impulse, if not from the president himself, from members of the cabinet, from military advisors to push for greater in military engagement. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, you know, to the extent Donald Trump goes out and says, look, I really want to get out of uh, Syria. I want to draw down in Afghanistan. There is a whole group of people that he has hired. Right who are slow walking or trying to convince the Pentagon to not actually execute on the things that the president wants. And to me, it just indicates that whatever you have as a president in the White House, given the delegations that Congress has made to mm -hmm. the executive branch, that even if there is public support for some sort of military action that, that we might take, it it almost seems inevitable that it's just going to go awry <laughs> given the given uh, the personnel conflicts that exist from the top of the chain of command on down well, well i think that the, Is, has that changed i think it's changed a little bit um eisenhower had a pretty um a pretty formal process of reviewing um national security decisions through the national security council and the Kennedy administration came in and saw that system as too ponderous, too formal, um, uh, too many actors involved. And Kennedy sort of created a, a system instead that had him at the center, but had many people feeding him information. Um, it was less hierarchical, it was sort of more like a spoke in a wheel. Um, and, 
and I think again there have been there have been studies on the on the strengths and weaknesses of those two approaches. What we learned though about Eisenhower's approach, a lot of that information had been was classified. We didn't know about what was actually going on in terms of those deliberations until many years later. And so um, Fred Greenstein, who's a, a political scientist at uh, Princeton, wrote a, a pretty famous book now called The Hidden Hand Presidency. When he got his hands on what was actually being done in the Eisenhower National Security Council, he revealed that the, or he learned that this person was Eisenhower was much more um, the whole process was much more effective than it, it seemed at the time. Look, it's entirely possible that that 20 or 30 or 40 years from now, we will see evidence emerging from the Trump administration to the extent that the record keeping is particularly good or things like that. Um, and it's entirely possible that this was all an elaborate um, uh, uh, you know, system in which the president says and tweets things that seem rather absurd, but there's something going on uh, at, at the lower echelons that actually make it all work. Um, I just think that's that a lot of people are nervous in the meantime, and I think other things the president has said uh, sort of cut against this belief that 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 there's some great um, uh, master plan that drive that drives his his two a.m. tweets. So. Uh Aside from the halls of the Cato Institute and and uh, other people who tend toward uh, non-interventionist uh, foreign policy, uh, you know what are the what are the lessons for uh, of the Eisenhower time as president? I think the lesson is that we should retain a skepticism of the utility of force even when we believe that sometimes in rare moments it is it is a useful instrument again this is this has to be emphasized Dwight Eisenhower wasn't a pacifist he didn't oppose the notion of the use of force but by the time by the time of his presidency and he gave some interviews in the, during his presidency and immediately after that what he had seen in World War II and his appreciation for the destructiveness of nuclear weapons that he gained an appreciation for in the early, you know, during his presidency, he he approached something like pacifism, right? He recognized the, how just how important it was to keep the Cold War reasonably cold. Now, he did, of course, engage in other actions that we learned later were, you know, undermining governments like in, in, in Iran in 1953, in Guatemala in 1954, an attempt in Indonesia in 1958. So there were those things as well that were behind, you know, that were not, that were below the threshold of open warfare. Um, but for the most part, I think he, um, he had a, a, a great caution about the uh, about war and the fear that war could escalate into something, uh, you know, world altering. Chris Preble is author of most recently Peace, War and Liberty, available later this month at libertarianism.org. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.